Good morning, Life Church. Will you please join me in standing for reading the word of the Lord, if you are able? And we're reading this morning from 1 Kings 19, verses 4 through 13. But Elijah himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? This is the word of the Lord.
So last month I had the opportunity to go uh, to Los Angeles for a pastor's equipping cohort. Um, I went alone and stayed by myself purposely. Um, it's the first time I'd really been out of the southeast by myself. I've done a lot of trips overseas, either, either leading um, like missions trip or just being on vacation with my wife or friends. But this was the first time I'd really been out of the southeast by myself. And I was there for about a week. I had a lot of great opportunities to meet um, good people, um, to be encouraged. Pastors are people too, and we need encouragement and and just training and and learning and all of that stuff. But I also spent a lot of time just being alone with no agenda, no to-do list, just my heart before God, either out in the wilderness of LA, which... This doesn't really exist. <laughs> the Aramos of Los Angeles. Um, or my Airbnb had a pool. I sat by that for a couple hours and just was listening, processing, thinking. Um, I mean, it wasn't perfect. I played a lot of Legend of Zelda too on the Nintendo Switch, just my confession. But um, I did really try a lot of just elongated moments of just me with nothing no to-do list, I had a to-do list, I had a lot on that to-do list, but I chose not to do any of those things. And maybe for a lot of you, that might feel like a waste of time. At first, when I was just there and not really doing anything before the Lord, my mind was super jumpy, as it usually is. But after a while, my heart just started welling up with just the love of God. I left that trip. It wasn't like fireworks in the sky. I wasn't caught up in the third heaven or anything like that. It it just, it was a good trip because I left feeling more clarity around who I am and who I'm not and what I'm called to do and, and not to do, but really just got more of a sense of how loved I am by God. Now, most people would say, listen, I don't, I don't have a lot of time to do what you did, to spend a day away doing nothing. I'm raising kids, I have a busy life, I just started my career, I'm full-time, I'm, I'm always behind my to-do list. And to spend a day where you just don't check a single thing off of that, that feels like bad stewardship. In fact, Henry Nouwen called solitude wasting time on God. We've been chasing over the past several weeks this practice from Jesus of solitude where he would go out all throughout his ministry into the Aramos. And what we've been processing and working through is that really solitude is intentional, quiet time with God and just an open heart before God. But a lot of us would feel like maybe that is a waste of time. And the reason why Nowen said that it's wasting time on God, not because solitude is a waste of time, but in a culture that is devoted to the worship of these two gods called accumulation and accomplishment, where pathological busyness is the norm, where people, even when they are alone, are not really alone. 
but tethered to their iPhone to spend a day in quiet listening for God and doing nothing seems stupid. But I love those who have really discovered the raw power of just setting your soul before its maker. There's an early uh, desert father, his name is Aminus of Egypt. He said, when a young man came to him for spiritual direction, he said, behold, my beloved, I've shown you the power of silence. How thoroughly it heals, how fully pleasing it is to God. It is by silence that the saints grew. It's because of silence that the power of God dwelt in them. Because of silence that the mysteries of God were made known to them. All throughout church history, no matter who it was, no matter your personality or stage of life, solitude, silence, and stillness hold a raw power in spiritual formation. Why? Because in silence, in solitude, you encounter God. Over the last two sessions, we've made the point that solitude is not a private, therapeutic place, but it is a place of encounter. First with ourself, we saw that a couple weeks ago where when you just get silent and still, a lot of things start happening. You start feeling these things called emotions. They start things that we've shoved down deep into the core of our soul, they start bubbling up to the surface and you're like, ooh, I don't like this. I don't like these things. But we talked about how even Jesus set out this pattern of real unedited feelings that he gave before the Father, to which he then gave his desires and then his trust. Last week, Doug showed us that when you go into solitude, sometimes you might encounter the enemy the flesh, the world, the devil. And now this week, we're ready for really the final and most important encounter of all, an encounter with God. If you're not at 1 Kings 19, I'd go ahead and invite you to turn there. If you remember from a couple weeks ago, Elijah was in a dark place. He came off a ministry high, which was 1 Kings 18. And now people are trying to kill him. He's wrestling with unanswered questions. He's like, I, you know, this, all this amazing stuff happened, and now, like, all these people are trying to kill me. He's like, I don't want to even be here anymore, Lord. But he shows us how we should retreat into solitude, into the aremos, that word there. It means lonely place or the wilderness or quiet place. And how we need to do that to get away with God, to get his perspective so that we can get out of ours. We see Elijah do that. We also looked at the seven-stage kind of pattern of what may happen to you when you go into solitude. The first four we talked about a couple weeks ago, when you just get still, the first thing that you might realize is, dang, I'm tired. It's like your body and your mind is like trying to catch up with you. All the emotions that you skirted past are like, oh, here we are, and you're just tired. I've heard this phrase a lot, burning out for Jesus. I hate that phrase. Because it just, it elicits this, oh, I have to do a lot of things for God, but I don't really know what it means to just be a son or daughter. (laughs) And so sometimes we just get so exhausted, we're doing, we're doing, we're doing, again, the twin gods of accumulation and accomplishment. So sometimes it's just the most godly thing you can do is take a nap. But the next thing that we might see is just we're waiting. Karin just read over us how Elijah was 
walking in the wilderness in the Aramos for 40 days and nights, and it, he doesn't hear anything from God. He's just walking, he's processing. So we talked about how there's a waiting element to it and a feeling, we, how things that just start to come out in us, we start to feel those things and then to get healing and to get clarity, we start naming those things. And what I want to uh, work through now is this last kind of three things, listening, transformation, and re-entering, solitude, and listening, transformation, and then re-entering. So verse eight. Elijah got up. So again, he's at the broom bush. He got up and he ate and he drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and nights until he reached Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. That's where God was at. If you remember that mountain, that's where he met the Israelites for the very first time. Verse nine, then he went into a cave and he spent the night and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 10, he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword, and I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Can You can just hear this confusion, frustration, fear. But notice what happens next. Elijah doesn't really get any answers to any of this. Listen to what the Lord tells him in verse 11. Then the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. God tells Elijah to go out because the presence of God was about to pass by. I can imagine Elijah's like, about time. (laughs) I've been waiting to get some clarity and perspective on what's going on. Let's just humanize these characters a bit. Have you felt that desperation too? When we come to God's presence, we feel at times like we just really need him to pull through for us. We're crying out to him desperate. Guys, we all crave proof of the power of God. That's normal. And especially when we feel isolated and lonely. Weeks and weeks of waiting in the quiet, Elijah's been here. And then, verse 11, the big moment, a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord, but he wasn't there. And after the wind came an earthquake, but he wasn't in the earthquake. But then after the earthquake came a big wildfire, but he wasn't in the fire. And after the fire came this gentle whisper. Wind and earthquake and fire, these are common common motifs in the scriptures of the glory of God. We see these all throughout the Old Testament, even into the New Testament, and Acts, wind and fire. Those are typically like, yeah, that's, that's the glory of God. He's here. But what's interesting is it says Yahweh's not in any of these things. It's fascinating. What's also fascinating to me is Elijah's just like sitting through all of this. <laughs> and it doesn't give much detail as to what he's probably thinking or that he like needs to clean himself up or anything. But have you ever been through like a hurricane or a tornado or an earthquake? Like we are small. 
Natural disasters, like, I mean, we are very small. So just the resolve for him to kind of like stick it out here. But it says again, Yahweh's not in any of this and we don't know how long it was until God spoke. And I just wonder like, maybe there's quite a bit of silence. You have to wonder at some point, maybe Elijah was like, are you there? Is that your experience? Impossible odds, are you there? But verse 12, we finally get something. The Lord does speak to him. And we don't know what he says. It's just a whisper. It was so safe and personal and inviting and quiet. And Elijah was listening. Which is the next part of this pattern, what happens in solitude. What Elijah shows us is we need to learn to wait on God and listen. We need to. And I just wanna camp out on this for a couple of minutes because this is really important. So I just, I would invite you to lean in. The French intellectual Simone Weil once said, waiting patiently in expectation is the foundation of the spiritual life. That was her summary of all of it, waiting patiently in expectation, the process of encounter. Sometimes it, it takes way longer than we prefer. We've been so formed by a culture of speed, 5G, right? Like when we don't see 5G on the iPhone, we're like, oh man, right in the sticks? You can order something on Amazon right now and by the time service is probably done, you go to lunch, it's on your porch. But the spiritual life, it has its own pace and typically it's slow. And much of it is just spent waiting and listening. Jesus regularly said, if anyone had, has ears to hear, let them hear, let them listen. Listening is at the heart of all true Christian spirituality. I love what Ruth Haley Barton says. She says, one of the basic assumptions of the Christian life is that God does communicate with us through the Spirit. The rhythm of speaking and listening we call communication is the heart of any real relationship, including ours with God. The capacity to recognize the voice of God through the ministry of the Spirit arises out of friendship with Him and is sustained through prayer silent listening and attentiveness to all that is going on outside of us, inside of us, and between us and God. Through practice, experience, we become familiar with the tone of his voice, the content of his communications with us, and his unique way of addressing us. We learn to recognize his voice, just as we learn to recognize the voice of a loved one. What Barton's getting at is a prayer practice, which is this week's practice called listening Prayer. You may be new to following Jesus, learning to hear God's voice for the first time, or you've been a Christian for many years, but if listening prayer is new to you, this is really, it's very simple. Dr. Isla Tassi from Kenya, she says there's three keys to listening prayer in order to do it well and position yourself like Elijah did. She says, there's so much going on in our minds, right? We can't turn these things off. We are distracted so much, so you need three things, a quiet place, a quiet time, and a quiet heart. 
So a distraction-free zone, a quiet place, a quiet time. Praise God for the Baptists. One of the best catchphrases that came out of that, a quiet time. It's beautiful. And a quiet heart. Our heart is full of noise, and so just an hour in silence. Maybe the noisiest hour of your life. And then in those elements, when you are in a quiet place and have a quiet time with a quiet heart, then you just open your mind to God. In biblical theology, 1 Corinthians 6, it talks about how the, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. What that means is that your body, including your mind, houses the very presence of God. You notice that? It's the dwelling place of God, meaning the Holy Spirit is inside of you, meaning he has access to your consciousness. The flow of thoughts, feelings, perceptions, images that pass through your mind's eye all day long. It's like if you're at a coffee shop or you're in like an open kind of, what are those things? Like open plan, yeah, open plan office. And you just like hear that one dude that's just like so loud. Now his thoughts are your thoughts. You just can't like block him out. It's kind of the same thing. The spirit of God can interrupt you and inject his thoughts. He doesn't have to speak audibly. He doesn't need to. Speech is guided thought. And so when you go into solitude, we spend most of the time just listening. We listen to scripture. Whether we open the Bible and read chapters and chapters at a time, or we just read one passage slowly and prayerfully, meditate on it. We listen to the circumstances of our life, searching for God's hand of providence and the unfolding of our story, asking the question, where is God in the events of my life? We listen to the quiet, even just whisperings of our own heart, trusting that God's spirit is often at work. And we also listen to the thoughts that come into our mind from God himself. He has access to those. So we have to listen carefully because God's voice is often so quiet and gentle, like our passage where it said a gentle whisper. Another way to translate that Hebrew is the sound of gentle silence. So many of us have found God's voice to be like a whisper. That's why quiet is the best medium for hearing God's voice. It's like learning to listen to any other voice. Jesus called himself the good shepherd, and he said, John 10, sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes on ahead of them. His sheep follow him because they know his voice. So think of it this way. If I were sitting at a coffee shop and my dad were to walk in behind me and just start talking, I would immediately know his voice. Why? Because I've grown up around it. I've grown up listening to my father. I would know his voice anywhere and it is good and it is Southern. And it's like a low too, it just kind of sweeps in under everything. I would recognize his voice anywhere and I would immediately turn around and say, Dad, much like it is with our heavenly father, we come to recognize his voice over all the voices in the world. My point is this, 
We have to learn to recognize the Father's voice, and it requires waiting and listening, being still enough and quiet enough to hear it. And again, we don't know what the Lord said to Elijah. I would love to know. We know he speaks to him again in verse 13, but we don't know what he says in verse 12. It was so intimate and personal that it didn't even make it into the scriptures. But it was safe enough that it drew Elijah out of the cave, probably shaking in his boots. We see here in verse 13, when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and he he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. This is the second time that this question and answer has been said. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. So verse 13, Elijah pulls his cloak over his face. You cover your face in the ancient Near East. This was a posture of respect. So when he's doing this, he's basically saying, the other party is greater than me. And as a sign of respect, he would put his cloak over his face. This is Moses in Exodus 3. He had to cover his face when he encountered the living God. It was an expression of humility. I know my place in your presence. I can't even look at you because you're so awesome. This is the shift we begin to see in Elijah. This face covering demonstrates that Elijah sees who he is in light of who God is. The presence and glory of God, it changed him. So verses 13 through 14, God asks Elijah again what he's doing here almost as if he's allowing him to process. Yahweh isn't confused or wondering what Elijah's going to say. He's not asking for his sake. He's asking for Elijah's sake. Jesus would do this a lot when he would say, what do you want me to do for you? Who do you say that I am? These questions weren't for Jesus, but for those who he was asking. And so even after this moment with God, Elijah asked the same exact question. I just wanna circle back and make sure you heard me, God. Did you hear me the first time? I love the humanity here. How many times do we keep asking God the same question? In our suffering, in the chaos, are are you going to pull through? Even when we draw upon his faithfulness, knowing he's come through over and over, come hell and high water, yet we find ourselves asking him the same questions. Are you there? Do you even care for me? I'm suffering. Do you see me? I've been asking myself these a lot the past couple of months. But look at how Yahweh responds. Verses 15, the Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi. I love these names. King over Israel. Anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat. 
from Abel Menholah. This is fun. To succeed you as a prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. Kissed him. So just a little bit of context there. This is, if you've read 1 Kings, Elijah is about to like shoot up into heaven. <laughs> And he anoints Elisha, who's going to take over him. So God's given him a pretty clear mission here. And he's telling him to go back the way that he came. Again, he's not given any real clarity on some of the things he asks. But he does learn something here. Remember what Elijah says? He's like, I'm all alone. He says, no, you're not. There are 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal, a righteous remnant who are there who have not bowed. And he says, now go back the way that you came. Which gives us a clue about the invitation of God into solitude. Solitude is for two things. It is for transformation, but it is also for then re-entering. You're not meant to be there forever. This is the last two of our seven-stage pattern. The power of being in God's presence is that you get God's perspective, his point of view. What felt hopeless and silent, God was at work all along. In Elijah's suffering, he's at work. Elijah's saying, I am all alone and they are going to kill me. No, like everybody is bowed down against you. And God's response, you are not wasting your life. I am with you. You are not alone. So the anxiety and the thoughts that Elijah had believed to be true were not actually true. You see that? The anxiety and the thoughts that maybe you have about yourself that are dominating your life might not actually be true. That's a word for someone in here. I know personally how real some of those thoughts feel. I'm alone. My life is pointless. I'm wasting my life. But what you may have been believing about yourself, when you get God's perspective, that changes. Elijah screams, I'm all alone. God says, no, you're not. It reminds me of Job. For 38 chapters, Job had no idea what God was doing. And why it just seemed that he was allowing all this chaos to erupt in his life. And then God just downloads on him things that Job will never understand. He gets a small glimpse of God's perspective. Were you there, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Do you understand how evil works? How, am I, how I'm fighting it? Do you care for all the animals? Do they depend on you? Job gets no answers. He just gets clarity and revelation. He gets God's perspective on life. And he says in, in chapter 42, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. God lets Elijah work through the pain. Alone, in a desert, 
processing, sleeping, eating, crying out to God, suffering, and then all God gives Elijah is just his presence. And then he tells him to go back. When we allow ourselves to be in the presence of God, we see things for how they really are, and that includes us. I said a couple weeks ago, we are naked and exposed, but being fully known by the Lord means we can be naked and unashamed. That was our original reality before the fall and our final reality. The presence of God, the glory of God in solitude led to transformation in Elijah. But that transformation was not just for him. It leads to then mobilization. Again, solitude and spiritual formation in general, it is not a private thing. It is not even all about you. Spiritual formation is for the sake of others too. That's why Jesus would say, come, follow me, come away with me, be with me, and I will make you, that's transformation, I will make you into my image. And then he says, to fish for people to go do the things that I did. So the goal of silence and solitude is to get to a place where we know who we are and what we are called to do. Transformation, it always leads to re-entering. This is the pattern of solitude, really summed up in two words, retreat and return. We see it in Elijah, but we also see it in the life of Jesus. Let's look again at one of those stories. Turn to Mark 1, verses 32 through 39. It'll be up on the screen too. So verse 32, that evening after sunset, the people brought Jesus, all the sick and demon-possessed, and the whole town gathered at the door. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases, and he also drove out many demons. But he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So in context, Jesus is coming off of a marathon day. He came out of the desert. Remember, he fought the devil. Mark 1, and then he wakes up early, he picks his disciples, and then he goes and he's just doing a bunch of stuff here, teaching in a synagogue, healing the sick, casting out demons. And we would think, because he's human, that he would just probably sleep in the next day. Go out to Bryant's with Peter, James, and John. But instead, it says, verse 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and he went off to, an, to the Aramos, to a solitary place where he prayed. So while everyone else is sleeping, because they're exhausted too, Jesus goes to solitude to pray, retreating. Verse 36, Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found them, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. Notice, they have to go searching for Jesus. They like go looking for him. Like It's almost like Jesus is hiding. But look at what comes out of the quiet. Next line. So they've gone searching for him. They're like, everyone's looking for you. And Jesus says, no, let's, let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Okay, so Jesus, the disciples are wanting Jesus to come back into the town. Like, he's popular now. Like, Jesus, ride the wave here, man. 
Build your following. You've got everybody like just banging at the door wanting to see you. And Jesus says, no, let's go somewhere else. An amazing opportunity to go back. All sort of social pressure on him. He says, let's go somewhere else. That is why I've come. So in this story, again, we see two things. Jesus' pattern of retreat and return. He goes into solitude to encounter God. And then he goes back to, into community. But number two, we see he comes back with this heightened sense of clarity. So interesting. And you may be wondering, wait, did, didn't Jesus know who he was? I mean, he was God, right? Yes, but Luke 2.52 reminds us that Jesus also grew in wisdom. What? Grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Grew means he got more. Clarity, affirmation from the Father. He felt things. He developed like other humans. He needed time alone with God, remembering who he was and being affirmed and validated by the Father. Sometimes I think seeing Jesus, like seeing that he has needs and seeing that he's like human, that makes us uncomfortable sometimes. What happens is when we elevate his divineness over his humanness, you're slipping into docetism. If you don't know what that is, that was an early church heresy, which elevated Jesus' divineness over his humanness. We believe he was fully God and fully man. So in solitude, Jesus wasn't just setting a pattern to follow, like, oh, this will be a good idea for everybody. No. Jesus needed this time, too, for his own soul. And it comes as no surprise that Jesus used two verbs with his apprentices on a regular basis. Come and go. Come away on retreat and then go back, return to love. And it's important we follow this pattern because if we don't come away, we lose our center. We just, like, do a bunch of stuff for God, forgetting that who we are in God but we have to go back. We cannot just stay there. When we encounter God in solitude, like Jesus, we emerge around more of who we are and what we're called to do. Identity and calling, just a short word on each. By identity, what I mean is just who we experience ourselves to be. We all live from an identity or a sense of self. But identity formation is unique in Christian spirituality because it's very different in how our culture thinks of identity. Our identity in Christians is not something that we choose. It's not like clothing we wear or what car we drive, what political party we identify with, maybe what sexuality says of us. No, identity is something that we discover, we receive as a gift from God. It's less architecture, like I'm making myself this, and it's more archaeology. It's less something we make up, and it's more something we unearth from our being in God. Much has been said about the true self in our culture, but through a Christian lens, we do not discover our true self by seeking it, but by seeking God. So in seeking God, we encounter the inner voice of love, the voice of God speaking over our life exactly who we are. I love that. 
We realize that all of these things are true of us, but they're not the truest things of us. The truest things about us is that we are in Christ. The language of the New Testament, we are seen utterly as we are, no filter, Photoshop, but we are enveloped by love. So that's what happens when we go into solitude. We get a clearer sense of just who we are in Jesus, but also in our calling. When we encounter God's love, we feel safe enough to surrender to God, his direction over our life. And then we're sent back by God out. Thomas Merton once said, we don't go into the, to the desert to escape people, but to learn how to find them. The desert fathers and mothers would say, we retreat from the world for the world. We come back with a new clarity of purpose around our calling, what I'm meant to do, what I'm not meant to do what I'm meant to give my time to and not to give my time to, what I'm meant to give my best energies to and not to. So when we say yes to God's call in our life, we can then say no to the other calls. This is why we need solitude now more than ever. I grieve when I hear that people like write this off because they're extroverted or, or they're busy or pastors like me say we're too busy in ministry. But guys, if Jesus needed this practice, how much more do we? And yet Jesus was no hermit. He would always come back, but not until after encounter with God. So again, this is why we need to learn not just to go away. We need to learn to wait on God and listen for his voice. How? By waiting patiently in the quiet and listening. This is the crux of discipleship to Jesus. There are some things that can only happen in solitude and nowhere else. Dallas Willard once said, you rarely find any person who's made any great progress in the spiritual life who did not at some point have much time in solitude and silence. So just as to close, I just I wanna land this plane with just a few practical things to consider about solitude. We spent a lot of time over the past four weeks, showing you a few exam or showing you examples from the scriptures, but what we've seen a lot is that solitude is both a place and a practice. It's a place like it could be a desert if you want to go to Arizona. It could be the wilderness, like it was for Jesus. I I would say this: don't underestimate the power of just being out in creation. John Tyson, he said that when we're walking in a city, we see how great man is. But when we walk in nature, we see how great God is. So I just like, I would encourage you, like, you might hate the woods. Maybe it's your backyard. Just go be in creation and like, just listen to the birds. Listen to the song of creation. And maybe being outdoors, or maybe you don't have a lot of time for that, that's okay. Jesus would teach, when he was teaching on prayer, he would say, go into the inner room, close the door and pray to your father who's unseen. He was referring to a room, typically in a first century home, this was where like dry goods would be stored. It was dark, so like a, very much a closet. So there he's saying like, there, there are places where you can like silence external noise. 
and just go and be with God. So again, the Aremos is a place, but it's also a practice. You can do this for days at a time. You can do it for 10 minutes. You can get up early and just sit in your backyard. But my invitation to you with this practice is not to just try it a couple times and be like, yeah, this, this is the worst. My invitation for you with silence and solitude is to start to incorporate this into your life architecture. For example, it can be like a daily, a weekly, and a monthly or seasonal rhythm. So for example, what I do daily, I try and spend at least 30 minutes to an hour. Just dead silence, stillness, just alone with the Father. Weekly, you might want to try and spend longer chunk of time in the quiet, maybe on Sabbath or on your day off. And then monthly or seasonal, maybe it's a practice of retreat. I've heard of some of you going out into the woods by yourself. That's great. I love that. So daily, weekly, monthly, or seasonal rhythms, but also it might just be to begin to denoise your life. One of the first things that you learn in solitude is that to really hear God's voice in the quiet, sometimes we just have to actually lower the volume on our life. (laughs) The Apostle Paul said to the Thessalonians, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Most of us just live in a noisy life and in a noisy world. But many of us, as we begin to follow Jesus more and more, like we just realize we don't, don't actually need this stuff. I don't need a podcast all the time. I don't need social media all the time. Typically, that's what I have found. Like I've just craved quiet more and more because I crave God more and more. I've been off social media now for like a year. Don't miss it. The newest thing for me was YouTube. That was hard. But now it's embarrassing. I have to tell my wife every time I go onto YouTube. That just curbs my addiction to YouTube because, babe, I'm watching Georgia again on, on YouTube. But I have found just so much freedom. Just in general, I've begun to denoise my life a little bit. And y'all, I don't, I don't miss it. St. John of the Cross, he said, our greatest need is to be silent before this great God for the only language he hears is the silent language of love. And he said this in the 16th century. This is hundreds of years before the iPhone. Y'all, we are the first generation to try and figure out how to follow Jesus with a smartphone. We're the first generation. We're the first people to sort out how to pray in the digital age, how to hear God's voice when every time we open our phone, a thousand other voices are screaming at you. Other identities, other callings. But future generations will look back on us and what will they say? Will we be a generation whose faith was sucked into the black hole of the digital age? 
or will we stand together against the gravitational pull and go into the quiet to encounter God? Y'all, our spiritual future hangs on the balance of this. Remember that line from Ruth Haley Barton? She said, an invitation of solitude is an invitation to enter more deeply into the intimacy of relationship with the one who just waits outside the noise. God is waiting for you just outside the noise. The crowds of people, the hurry of the city life, south end, all your distractions of your time, But in time, when you begin to quiet the outer noise and the internal chatter, you experience somewhere quiet, so quiet that you can start to hear the hum of your inner ear. It's in that place that you will start to be enveloped and feel enveloped by the love of God. God, there are a few things, if any, more wonderful this side of the resurrection to actually know that you are deeply loved by the Father. Do you desire to encounter God? Then say yes to his invitation into silence, solitude, and stillness and follow him into the quiet. So let's stand. Our final week, our final uh, spiritual exercise with just this, um, this practice. It's called listening prayer. We talked about it a little bit earlier, but um, in life groups, in the guide, it'll kind of walk you through just how to do that. I would encourage you just to continue beginning your day in quiet before you even turn on your phone. But I would, rec- or I would recommend you to um, practice this listening prayer probably when in that morning rhythm, but again, if it's easier for you to do that at night, that's great. But I'm just going to invite you even now, we've been doing this every week, um, just, I've done a lot to kind of engage your mind and, and, and go into examples in the scriptures and, and to kind of show you why you should do this. But just even now, just invite the Holy Spirit, would you Would you help me to learn to recognize your voice? Would you capture my thoughts, as Paul said, taking them captive? Would you show me how loved I am by you? Would you draw to mind scriptures? Would you help me get perspective on my life? Would you help me see that I'm not alone? So even now, I just invite you to listen.
Father, just I think maybe for a lot of us, we are looking for you to show up in just unbelievable ways, to wind or fire, or earthquake, but how simple it would be if we just would still our hearts and begin to denoise our life that you were waiting to meet us in the quiet, as it said, in the gentle sound of silence. It's in silence and stillness that we feel so exposed, but that's exactly what you're inviting us into so that we can learn to recover what it means to be unashamed. Man, if we could grab that. If we could walk in our real identity as sons and daughters of the King that you've called us all so uniquely in the kingdom of God. Leading out of an identity that we are loved, we don't have to do things to earn your love. Love us so deeply. You've done everything necessary to bring us into relationship through Jesus, and now we operate out of that. Would you meet us in the quiet? Will we not be afraid of it? Will we learn to see it as the language of love? Pray all this in Jesus' name.